Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas at lifeovercoffee.com. We're doing lesson number four in our friendship series, Building Quality Relationships. We at Life Over Coffee exist to bring hope and help to you and others by creating resources that spark conversations for transformation. I appreciate all of you who have joined this friendship series, Building Quality Relationships. Lesson number four is going to be a little bit challenging for us because, well, all of us have experienced the adverse side of relationships. And so I've titled lesson number four, Overcoming Mistrust and Hurt. The key verse that we're looking at throughout this entire seven-part series is from 1 John 4.12. John penned these words. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Of course, we know that we live in a fallen world, and we are fallen individuals, and therefore God's love is not perfectly perfected in us all the time. And that's the big idea that I want to work through in lesson number four. It is this. We have all been hurt. And we have hurt others. Therefore, true repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation are needed in our relationships. Overcoming mistrust and hurt. Let's take a look at the outline. Point number one, define cynicism. Number two, omniscience and us. Number three, a healthy set a self-assessment. Number four, imperfect friends. And so let's start with defining cynicism. I want to use a quote that has been so helpful to me from Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life. This is what Paul Miller said, quote, To be cynical is to be distant, while offering a false intimacy of being in the know. Cynicism actually destroys intimacy. It leads to a creeping bitterness that can deaden and even destroy the spirit. Cynicism begins with the right assurance that everyone has an angle. Behind every silver lining is a cloud. The cynic is always observing, critiquing, but never engaged, loving, and hoping. Overcoming mistrust and hurt, it happens to all of us, and if we're not careful, we can become a Christian cynic. I want you to notice in this quote several parts, and then I want to illustrate it for you, but he says that to be cynical is to be distant, and and, and that's what happens with the cynical person is that they create a space, an unnecessary or an unhelpful space, between themselves and other people. And he says, while offering a false intimacy of being in the know, the cynic actually destroys intimacy. What he means by false intimacy is the cynic can be in a crowd, but they are distant. And so they appear to be intimate because they are in the crowd, but they are not intimate. They are relationally distant. Uh, Perhaps you know someone who has been hurt and maybe... Let's say it is a legitimate hurt. Someone has done something or people have done things that are sinful toward the individual, but because they did not process what was happening to them biblically, now the hurt that happened to them is managing or controlling them to the point to where they have become a cynic. 
this person can uh, walk away from Christianity, and let's say some years later they come back to Christianity and begin attending a, a local church. They come into the church building on Sunday morning. They sit on the back row with their arms crossed looking over their glasses. They are intimate in the sense that they are in the building, but it is a false intimacy because they are distant. The cynicism actually destroys the intimacy. It is a creeping bitterness, Paul Miller says. And this is where if we don't have a reasonable expectation, I talked about that in an earlier lesson, if we don't have a reasonable expectation among fallen people, a bitterness can creep up on ourselves and it can deaden and even destroy the spirit. And so the cynic, begins with this right assurance that everyone has an angle. They are suspicious. They do not operate with charity and love believes all things, but they believe that the other shoe is always going to drop. Behind every silver lining is a cloud. The cynic is always observing from the back row, crossed arms over their glasses, critiquing. But here's the false intimacy part. They're never engaged. They're never loving, and they're never hoping. And a person can be a cynic, and you not even know this. And this is why we want to assess people soberly with charity. Uh, but we want to ask God to give us an insight into our relationships because that cynic could be even among you, appearing to be intimate, but yet it is a false intimacy, and that is the danger of cynicism. Let me animate for you uh, in this presentation of what cynicism can look like and the process of how it can deaden the spirit, as Paul Miller says. It begins with a disappointment, as you see here on, on the screen. And when that disappointment enters, uh, enter their life. It, it enters their psyche, their heart. Now, if their heart is not managed by God. Remember lesson number one, knowing and loving God is foundational to building proper relationships. And if their heart is not situated properly in God, let's say that there is discontentment in the heart. Well, when that disappointment enters, it's going to go into this container, as you see on the screen. And inside that container is discontentment. And so that disappointment is going to jostle with the discontentment. This is what James was talking about in James 4. There is a war inside. And so the discontented heart is wrestling with the disappointment. And then what is going to exit from this person is a response, and that response will be a critical spirit. By the way, you can reverse engineer this. If a person has a critical spirit, it is pointing to a discontented heart, not a heart that has the shalom of God operating in it, but discontentment is managing them. And the critical spirit, the fruit in their life, is revealing the condition of the heart. It is the disappointment that creates the heat that brings out that critical spirit. And so if you know someone with a critical spirit, they are revealing to you even unwittingly what is operative in their heart. In this case, I'm describing a heart of discontentment. That critical spirit 
will actually find affirmation. You remember the cynic has this wry assurance that behind every uh, silver, every cloud, every silver lining, there is something nefarious going on. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And of course, they will see the mistake in the church. They will hear the misspoken a word from the preacher they will uh, no one will shake their hand they're looking for it because they are cynics they expect it and so out of that critical spirit they will find that affirmation and of course that affirmation will create more disappointment and this is what i call the cyclic effect of cynicism for those of you who are watching the video, you can put your device over the QR code and you can download this graphic here and you can have it, you can use it, and I would encourage you to have this discussion among your friends as you talk about how the cyclic effect of cynicism can take advantage of your soul and ravage your soul, and perhaps you know someone like this that you want to first pray for them and then ask God to give you the courage and perhaps that opportunity to speak to them so that they can get out of this cyclic effect and maybe seeing what is going on uh, with them in them, maybe that would be enough to stimulate them to want to uh, change. Cynicism is a fortress that the hurt too often person hides within to keep from being disappointed Again, it's a voluntary time out from the Christian life. And so I talked a little bit about cynicism. Point number two is omniscience and me. And this is important when we have disruptions in our relationships. Again, this is lesson four, overcoming mistrust and hurt. It's going to happen because we live in a fallen world. We are fallen people among fallen people, and so fallen things are going to happen. And when they do, it's important that we have a proper view of what is going on. And here's one way to think about the proper view is what God knows. And I'm going to describe it this way on the screen. Here's a picture of planet Earth. And that is minuscule as to what omniscience actually is. But how can finitude describe the infinite? And so I'm trying to describe it in anthropomorphic ways. And so what God knows is is infinite. In this case, let's say he knows everybody in the world, knows all the thoughts and intentions of everybody's heart, knows their motivations, knows what they did, what they're doing, and what they're going to do. God is omniscient. What he knows and what we know is wildly different. If you're looking at the screen, you can uh, see this as I uh, illustrate it this way with this little microscopic dot there on the screen. Now, this is way out of proportion. Uh, it's like your rearview uh, mirror that objects will appear closer than they really are. Well, in this case, this object doesn't even come close. Uh, to revealing how things actually are. And why is this important? Because when you are hurt, you want to make sure that you don't flip this around thinking that you know everything there is to know about what happened, why it happened, what they were thinking, what the motivation was, what's going on in their lives, the ex extenuating circumstances in their lives, what they intended by what they said. No, that's not what we know. 
In fact, what we know about what someone does to us is incredibly limited, and that is the point that I want to make here when hurt happens. I am not marginalizing any sin that anyone perpetrates on you. I'm not marginalizing any hurt that you have experienced. That's not what I am saying here. What I am saying here is that we have to have a proper view, recognizing that we do not understand all the facts in the situation. And if we do, it's not going to remove what happened to us, but it will govern our hearts as we think about, one, what God may be up to in this situation, and two, as we think rightly about the other person. Perhaps you remember in a previous lesson where I talked about having affection for other people in our relationships, even having affection for Uh, People who do not know God, the unregenerate world, as James talked about in 3.9, that they are made in the image of God, that we have to have enough awareness minimally that it creates an affection in our hearts for the other person. But when we think we know more than we actually know, then how we think about other people, specifically those people who hurt us, we're going to have a wrong attitude toward them. We're going to approach them with the wrong way. There will not be affection in our heart. And then typically what will happen is we will start making statements rather than asking questions. The humble heart recognizes that they do not know everything. They do not have all the facts. And so they enter into relational conflict asking questions. They want to grow their awareness because they know that they do not know all that they need to know. But the person who believes they have grasped the situation in the way that it needs to be grasped, and they have all the data that you need to have in order to come to right conclusions about the situation and the person, well, they will enter into that conflict, into that confrontation, making statements, which is code for making accusations. And when we do that, we're taking the role of omniscience, not the role of humility. We're not recognizing uh, the responsibility that we have to humble ourselves before God, trying to grasp the mind of God, and then moving forward in a heart of humility, which would be manifest by asking questions when there is mistrust and hurt. If you you would like to download this graphic, you can put your device on the QR code, and you're welcome to grab this graphic from lifeovercoffee.com, and please uh, use this. Make it a part of your teaching, your discipleship endeavors, biblical counseling, and, of course, personal application. We want to make sure that we have a healthy self-assessment when we move into these uh, conflict moments when mistrust and hurt happens. And so I would recommend that here's a few things for, for you to think about. Number one, do not attempt to address someone's shortcomings until you have convinced yourself that you are the bigger sinner. Now, I'm using Paul's language in 1 Timothy 1.15. At the end of his life, He thought of himself as the chief of sinners, as the King James says, the foremost sinner, as you read in some of your Bibles. Paul did not have a worm theology. He was not on a sin hunt. He's not saying that that he has committed more sins than anyone else. He's not saying that the sins that he's committed consequentially are worse than everyone else. 
He's just recognizing the fact that what he has done against Christ has more control, controlling interest over his heart and mind than what anybody else has done to him. It doesn't marginalize what anyone has done to him, but he's recognizing that he has committed the infinite crime against an infinite God that took an infinite price to pay for that infinite crime. And so even though other sinners have committed more or consequentially worse, he's focused on one thing. I have sinned against God. That stabilizes his heart. It doesn't throw him into morbid introspection. It doesn't send him crawling through the muck and mire into some kind of uh, worm theological wrestling. It's just a sober assessment of what he has done against God. Now he follows up in verse 16, but God has shown mercy. And so it balances out his soul. You never want to forget where you came from. Maybe you could illustrate it this way, that you lived in a dilapidated home once upon a time. You lived in a single-wide mobile home once upon a time. And through a series of circumstances, by the grace of God, you're able to move to a two-story home, a larger home, a more expensive home. You never want to forget that, that single-wide mobile home. You never want to forget that dilapidated house that you lived in, that government housing that you lived in. You don't want to forget it, because as you remind yourself of where, where you used to be and where you are now, what springs forth is a heart of gratitude. And so Paul didn't live in his depraved state. Uh, Paul didn't magnify his sin. He just never forgot where he came from, recognizing that the grace of God has, has changed his status. Now he has an alien righteousness. And so there's a gap between where he used to be and where he is now, and it caused gratitude, but not just gratitude. It governed his heart with how he thought about other people. Do not attempt to address someone's shortcomings until you have convinced yourself that you now are the chief of sinners, or in my case, I am the chief of sinners. When addressing another's shortcomings, always start with your flaws. This is what Jesus was teaching in Matthew 7, 3 and 5, that you address the log in your eye before you go speck fishing. And so if you take these two verses, what Paul is, is telling us here in 1 Timothy 1 and what Jesus is telling us in Matthew 7, there's enough information here to really calibrate our hearts before we start engaging another person with whatever they have done wrong to us. Point number three, when addressing someone's sins, remember the greatest sin. As I've stated, I put Christ on the cross, and no one can outsin that sin. Sometimes I will share this in a counseling situation because in a counseling dynamic, you can have these moments where someone is having a, let's, let's say, a cathartic moment where they're being vulnerable, they're being weak, they're being transparent, they're being honest, and they're sharing deep and dark things about their lives, and they're okay with it. And then they leave the counseling session, and they're five minutes down the road, and then this this rush of fear and shame comes over them. And it's like, I cannot believe that I just shared those things. If you sense that, and I have sensed that sometimes with some people, what I would want to do, and I've done this many times, is I've let them know. And it, it may sound something like this. 
Thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you for sharing the things that you have shared with me. Uh, I appreciate you doing that, but but this is something that I, I want you to know. I, what you have done is is it's as bad as you you say it is, and I understand that according to Scripture, those things are wrong, et cetera. But I need for you to understand how I think about what you have done, because of all the things that you have iterated here, that you articulated, you've done nothing compared to what I have done against my God, against my Savior. I have put Christ on the cross. But because of my sin, Christ died. And through my eyes, through my glasses, through my lens, this is how I see you. And so that's my presupposition. I see you that way. And so even though you've shared these things, as bad as they are, my darkness is darker because I killed Christ. I put Christ on the cross. And I say that not for grandstanding purposes, not because it might be theological smart to some people. I I say it, one, because it's true. Two, it governs my heart, really, and then three, I do want to put them at ease. I don't want them to go into some shame-laden wrestling, you know, after being so vulnerable and transparent with me. I want them to recognize how I think about them, and I do not see myself better than them. And only a proper view of yourself in the light or the shadow of the cross will put you in proper view of other people. Number four, if you bring correction to a Christian, remember God bore his wrath on Christ to save this person. That person, that Christian that you are correcting is God's child. You can think about this in Romans 8, 29, for whom he predestined, he called, called, um, he sanctified, sanctified, glorified. That text there in 2930, you see this golden linkage of, of God's eternal view on this person and uh, eternity past and his eternal view, eternity future view of this person. You see this in Philippians 1.6. What God has begun in this believer, God is going to complete. You, you see this the timeline in this person's life from eternity past to eternity future. God bore his wrath to save this person. This is God's child. Therefore, you're stepping into a timeline in between two eternities, and you are correcting God's child. That's important. I mean, maybe you could think about it this way. If a dad sent his teenage son to you to counsel you would counsel that teenage son with respect and with affection, recognizing you want to honor the dad because that is the dad's son. In a similar way, when we are correcting a Christian, we have to remember that God bore his wrath on Christ to save this person. This is God's child. God's going to finish what he has begun and in, in his mysterious wisdom, he is choosing you to step into this timeline to cooperate with him as an ambassador, to bring God's word, to speak God's word into the chaos of this child's life, to bring a restorative impact. And so we want to steward that very carefully. Be sure the person you correct knows your gratitude and your affection for them before and after you correct them. A wonderful exercise at this point would be to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, where you 
you hear, you read, you sense, you feel Paul's affection for these mean people. Grace upon you and our Lord Jesus Christ. I have been praying for you. You're going to be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, etc. Those verses there are profound when you think about correcting mean people. You hear Paul's gratitude and his affection. And if you do not have gratitude and affection before them, well, point number six, if you do not feel affection for the person you are about to correct, it may be wise not to bring your correction to them. Number seven, your conversation should be more about what they're getting correct than where they miss the mark. In Ephesians 4.29, it talks about building up it's not wrong to withhold, I mean, to provide correction, but that correction needs to be in a construct of where you are evidencing God's grace in their lives and you are encouraging them. And so you want to be marked by encouragement as you correct them. In fact, if you are more of an encourager, your correction of them will be received and you will not exasperate them because that is all they know or all they hear from you is your correction of them. And so we want to make sure that we season our speech with encouragement because we have to be more uh, than just being a corrector of people. I want to talk a little bit about imperfect friends. This is lesson number four, overcoming mistrust and hurt. We're talking about the the negative things that happen in our relationships. And so, of course, we have to think about uh, imperfect friends. By the way, which we all are. Release imperfect friends to be imperfect. God made our friends a certain way. Part of our job is to help each other mature into the unique vessels that God is shaping us to be. So here's a question for you. How are you releasing the imperfect people in your life to realize and to experience what God is shaping in them? Question two, do you make them more concerned about your opinion of them or God's opinion of them? Question number three, are your friends freer? When you are not around, and are they more guarded around you? Now, I would love for you to take this screenshot here and that you work through these three questions. And I would appeal to you to talk to someone about these three questions. Let this be your homework assignment in this ongoing uh, seven-part series about uh, building quality relationships because all of our relationships are imperfect as we are imperfect. And we have to understand uh, that our friends are different from us. You're different from them. I am different from you. God made our friends a certain way. A little bit later, I want to get inside the differences of individuals because if we do not understand that, we will not be cooperating with God in what he could do in their lives, what he is shaping them to be. And so the questions are, are you a releasing person? Are you releasing imperfect people in your life to realize and experience what God is shaping them to be? Uh, our son, for example, uh, he learns differently than our daughters. Uh, I'm not saying that he is right or wrong or they're right and wrong. I'm saying that they are different. Do 
any of them learn perfectly? No. But what we want to do is to be releasing, understanding who they are. I'm not talking about ignoring sin or not dealing with sin. Just recognizing that people are different and we want to cooperate with God so that we can discern people and see that they can experience God in a different way than we because they are different from us. And so we want to be careful in question number two that we don't want to make them more concerned about our opinion of them than God's opinion of them. We can create a culture of fear in our relationships or our families and our homes because we're so corrective and we're not discerning of them. We want them to have be more managed by God's opinion of them than what we think of them. And then, of course, if that doesn't happen, question number three, they will not be free around us. They will be guarded around us, and they'll be freer when we are not around them. And so I appeal to you not to be surprised when imperfect friends do imperfect things. Having a full view of the doctrine of sin is essential when building relationally with others. If you don't, you will be surprised when they sin. Let me ask you a question in your ongoing homework assignment in this lesson. How do you respond when imperfect people sin? Do you expect imperfect people to be perfect all the time? Question number two, are you more focused on what they do wrong or how you can help them become more like Christ? Question number three. Would you talk to them about your perspective, about their perspective of you and how it affects them? I've had this conversation with our children. I remember specifically with our oldest daughter as I was getting angry at her because she was not meeting my expectations and ask her what she thought about. Uh, me, uh, what was her perspective of me and how it affected her. And it was a wonderful, redemptive conversation. And so I would encourage you to screenshot uh, these three questions here. Think through it. Again, I'm not making an allowance for sin, but we want to be careful. Uh, we can have elevated expectations on people. And because of those elevated expectations, there's no room for wobbling within that relational experience. And, and that's can create all sorts of dangers and relational complications. And so you can wrestle through these questions. And I would encourage you to have those conversations, especially those people that you have authority over. And so if you are a husband, like say over a wife or parent over a children or a pastor over a congregant or whatever that construct is, or just peer to peer, will you talk to them about their perspective of you? Because in our relationship, sometimes one person in the relationship can have so much power over the other and it affects people adversely. And it is a a pink elephant in the room is a conversation that we need to have sometimes with our friends if we're going to build quality relationships. If you're more apt to get bent out of shape when a person messes up, you will likely create a culture of fear in your relationships. And so here's your question under this panel. Are you an encourager? Is this how others would characterize you? Number two, are your friends maturer? 
because of your relationship with Christ, meaning your relationship with Christ has more power over you, and it has this effect on them, which is maturing your friends because of your ongoing maturing relationship with Christ. Question number three. Do you seek to shape your friends into a version of you or a version of Jesus? The follow-up is, does God become more prominent in their eyes after being with you, or do you become more significant in their eyes? Now, in this lesson, number four, Overcoming Mistrust and Hurt, I have more questions in it than the previous lessons because this is a, a pinch point for all of us. This is a pivotal pivotal point in our relationships because sin does happen, and that's why I want to take time to work through these different questions. And so I would encourage you not to move too swiftly through this lesson, but you stop at each one of these panels and you study these questions, screenshot them, write them down, and have the appropriate conversations with your friends so that you can benefit the most from this series. The next set is discerning the situation. Most arguments are over preferences. You remember a previous lesson where I talked about how uh, desires morph into needs, but we can make these preferences or make these desires into something that we should not, and then, of course, we are disappointed uh, because the person did not meet our expectations, and we end up punishing someone. Rarely do folks argue over things that God would deem important enough to discuss at a level of intensity. Here's your question. What crucial thing have you fought over recently, and did you view the situation from God's perspective or yours? Question number two. How often does your reputation interfere with how you discern the situation? Now, what I could mean by that is that we can be so into reputation management with how people think about us. For example, a person who never wants to be wrong, and so they're managing their reputation because they don't want to be vulnerable. They don't want to appear weak, and because their reputation has more management over them, it interferes with how they discern the situation. Like a parent could blame the child for doing something, putting the weight of it on the child or on the spouse uh, because they're more into themselves and their reputation and how they appear uh, before the person that they are in conflict with. And then question number three in this panel, are you being honest when you hold firm to your convictions? Are they convictions? Sometimes we have convictions that the Bible would not support when in reality these are preferences, but we hold firm over them when in actuality we should not. So again, screenshot this panel and your homework assignment is to work through these questions. The next panel, be humble and Confess, we all have sin when responding to others. To uh, The fix for imperfect friends is by humbly confessing and seeking forgiveness from them. The question is, are you quick to confess your sins? What is your life's most common theme? Confession to or correcting others? Are you more confessional or more about correction? Question two. Which of the two does your spouse receive the most from you, your confession or your correction? If you are married, uh, your homework assignment, your mission, should you decide to accept it, is to ask your spouse this question. Number three, if you correct more than you confess, will you work to dismantle your self-sufficiency and find help? What I mean by self-sufficiency or self-reliance, those are the same things, is that 
if you correct more than you confess, then you're not doing it God's way. You're doing it your way, meaning that you're relying on yourself, not relying on God. If you are more God-reliant, you will be more humble, which will open you up to be more likely to confess. You will be more likely to confess first, to confess more often rather than correct. And so this is an important screen that you can grab here and another set of questions to work through. Live in community. A healthy body has a healthy immune system. Paul wrote to local churches to encourage them to do effective one-anothering. The question is, do you have a small group of friends? Do your friends really, really know you? Do they know things about you, but you withhold the real you from them? And then the third question is, will you trust God? with your life by being more humble and revealing to those who love you? That is a closed-ended question, so I would ask you to open it up and to explain what that would mean to you as you work through these questions. And then finally, remember the gospel. One one implication of the gospel is that, as I've talked about earlier, I am a bigger sinner than everyone. If this truth rivets your soul— It will radically alter your relationships. I'm coming back to this point because it's that important. And so the question is, do you spend more time spec fishing than examining the log in your eye? What is the main point of your relationship, to serve or for others to serve you? And so there's two questions here. I've talked a bit about this earlier, but I wanted to finish with this because if the gospel is not riveting our souls, if we do not have a proper perspective of who we were before God, who we are in Christ today, and what our point is, is to serve not to be served, then uh, we will have an adverse impact on our relationships. The big idea in lesson number four in our friendship series, Building Quality Relationships, is that we all have been hurt, and we have hurt others. Therefore, true repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation are needed. In the forthcoming lessons, I will unpack what repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation could look like. As I've talked about uh, having a sin plan, I want to work through that as we move through this series. Please pray for our ministry. Follow us, share our content, and if you're able to support or donate, that would be fantastic. If you're interested in a mastermind program, please uh, put your uh, phone over this QR code and read all about it, and I would love for you to get your answer, questions answered. And then if you want to become our master, our next mastermind student, you could start today if you desire. This is lesson number four, Overcoming Mistrust and Hurt, the friendship series, Building Quality Relationships. Thank you so much. I am Rick Thomas. You can find me at Life Over Coffee, where we're having conversations for transformation. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.